Welcome back to the live drop. I've always wondered how embassies can do their important diplomatic work while being stuck in the middle of nowhere at some times, or in foreign countries or hostile areas. Um, their security is provided by the Diplomatic Security Service, or DS, and also a Marine detachment. And my guest, Cody Perone, has served with both. He's also written a book about it called Agents Unknown. Begin transmission now. I don't know how I found the book, to be honest with you. I remember um, looking up some stuff on Diplomatic uh, Security Service, and I looked at your book. I didn't know that it was so recent. When I first started reading it, I thought I thought it was like this, written by this sort of, uh, you know, kind of crusty DSS guy, you know, with a buzz <laughs> cut from like the 70s, who was, you know, that cranky guy at the embassy. And I thought, oh, because yeah, yeah, I, I thought me. the book was older, you know, and I'm like, what? And then I started reading yeah. it. And I thought, oh, no, this this is not the guy. This is a different book. Yeah, you know, the few books that have been written on DSS uh, are by retired guys. Uh, and, and, and maybe you can't consider them crusty, very experienced guys. Yeah. Um, I only did a little less than, a little less than 10 years. Uh, but for me, it was like, Hey, listen, this is the voice of a ground agent of a guy doing, doing the, what they call knuckle dragger work. Right. Uh, and, uh, those guys had, they wrote the book, no doubt a ton of experience, but they were 25 to 30 years removed, yeah. you know, from the type of stuff that I was doing. Um, so, you know, I figured it, it would be a good, uh, good thing to write about. I, I mean, I initially wrote it just because I wanted to put stuff down on paper. And then uh, as I was talking to different people, they were like, hey, you should just write a book. What is the Diplomatic Security Service? I, what I, From what I know of it is that it was the oldest security service. It actually used to be – what I read is that it actually used to be the OSS or that somehow it morphed into the OSS even before CIA. It was the original security intelligence organization. Maybe you could tell me how, how off I am about that. Yeah, so I don't know about it being the initially OSS. I don't. I don't think that was. I don't think that was the case. But it was called the Bureau of Secret Intelligence initially, and and it's interesting that the name was Secret Intelligence, but they were actually doing security. They were primarily security agents doing uh, security management work around the world. And only was it. I, and I might get the years wrong. But I think it was the the eighties or around the Beirut bombings in which they they call it the Inman time because there was a guy named Admiral. Admiral uh, last name was Inman. And then they became special agents or they became uh, federal law enforcement agents as well. So it's a combination of doing security work and doing law enforcement investigations work. But yeah, 1916 Bureau of Secret Intelligence, uh, several years later, I think it was the 80s, uh, it was the turn into the Diplomatic Security Service. And what it is, is the, it's the law enforcement arm of the U.S. State Department. Most of your federal law enforcement agencies fall under either Homeland Security or uh, Justice. And you have a few here and there under other agencies. I have a few agents, but we fall under the state department. Now we still have the same authorities as any other agent, right? Any other federal agent. So FBI, DEA, ATF. The thing is we have a focus. Our primary, we have three focuses actually. Our investigative focus is uh, visa passport fraud and crimes with a nexus to that. You could have human trafficking, human smuggling crimes. You can have identity theft crimes. There's a number of crimes, federal crimes, that are connected to visa passport fraud. The second element is protection. So we, we protect the U.S. Secretary of State and foreign dignitaries at the cabinet level to come over to the U.S. You know, when I say cabinet level, we're talking equivalent of our Secretary of State, of our Secretary of Defense from foreign countries. And we don't protect all of them. There's, got to, there's, a, there's a whole threshold that they have to meet. I don't know what the equation is for them to meet that threshold, but a, a small country in Africa may not, may not get the protection detail because we just the threat's not there. 
And then the third portion, which I enjoyed the most, and is something that's a, way different than any other federal agency, is we do security management at U.S. embassies. And security management comes out of it's a robust portfolio. It has it's everything from more mundane things like managing a guard force or a surveillance detection team to managing a counterintelligence portfolio, and, and which in that sense, it's more reporting type stuff that we hear and learn. I guess the fourth thing would be, and this is only since the war started back in 2001, is we have a high threat protection now. So uh, I spent 27 months in Iraq doing high threat protection at U.S. embassies. So diplomats that are going out to conduct business and do whatever diplomats do, they needed protection out in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and a few other places around the world. And so that's kind of like the fourth element to to what DS has really got their hands in these days. Uh, but that's, that's kind of a 30,000 foot view. There's a lot of other offices uh, within DS and like at our headquarters, but that's a, it's kind of a general overview of what, what we do. What, what drew your interest in that and where did you, where and how did you train for it? I left Louisiana. I was 18 to be a, a United States Marine and I became a Marine. And my whole goal was to do four years in Marine Corps, become a Louisiana state trooper because I was interested in law enforcement. And I did a couple of years in the infantry and then I learned about this program called the Marine Security Guard Program. And so what this is, is Marines that protect our U.S. diplomatic facilities overseas. So after two years in the infantry at 29 Palms, I was ready to get out of there. If you haven't been, it's, there's not many Palms. It's mostly mostly desert and sand. <laughs> I've been there. Okay. Well, I'm sorry you had to experience that. <laughs> yeah, so I left and I did this Marine Security Guard Program. And uh, the Marine Guard detachments are one of are one of the only active duty military detachments that are operationally managed by a civilian. And so that civilian was a diplomatic security special agent or, or multiple, right? There's the regional security officer who's the head diplomatic security special agent. And then there's a deputy and there's assistant regional security officers. So that's how I, I learned of it. And I really kind of took to uh, living overseas. Guy from a small town, Louisiana, never thought I'd be interested, but I, I really became interested in the diplomatic lifestyle, living overseas, under, you know, learning different cultures and languages and cuisine. And so I learned that this job, this my security job could give me both. It could give me law enforcement, which I wanted to do initially, right, to be a Louisiana State Trooper, and also to uh, give you know the opportunity to to live overseas. And so that's how I got into it. As soon as I got out of the Marine Corps, I started I went to college and uh, got my bachelor's, and then applied. And I applied several times. It took me three tries to get in. I finally got in, and uh, and that the rest is history. What was the application process? Was it essays or interviews? Yeah, it's like pretty thorough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty thorough process. I think they're, they're getting better, but you do an online assessment initially, mm-hmm. be like a writing sample and some questions. Right. And then they'll take you in and do an interview. And my interview took, if you get to the end, it takes about six hours. To, it's a six hour day or so total. And it's not one interview, it's multiple interviews. You do a handwritten uh, test, you do another writing sample. On the Well, back then it was, it was handwritten as well, but to do a test uh, now, I ha- uh, a written sa- uh, a writing sample on the computer, and then you'll have a couple interviews with special agents, DS, DS special agents, active ones, uh, then a senior level DS agent and a foreign service officer, and usually it's a fo- it's a senior foreign service officer. Right. Um, so once you get past that, and I think that's an element that's very much different than any other federal law enforcement agency. They have this civilian non law enforcement person that basically you have to convince right that you're good enough to be on the job. You're talking about the f- a foreign service officer. Yep. Foreign service officer. I mean, the generally the well, let me jump jump in for a sec. Where are you from in Louisiana? I'm from a small town called Ville Platte. Ville Platte. It's around Lafayette area. It's uh, 
It's Cajun country. So just speak any part of français? Say, you know, laissez les bons temps rouler. Yeah, you know, things yeah. like that, you know, yeah. but uh, uh, no, I'm not fluent in it. You did hear people speaking it though growing up, I'd imagine. Oh, of course. Yeah, my grandfather and, and, and grandmother spoke it together with each other almost exclusively. Wow, everybody, my, everybody's from Homa. Oh, yeah. I know Homa. Yeah, I know it well. That's a different part of the country down there. It's just like a kind of subset of American culture, yeah. You ended up going to Vietnam. I think the weather's a little bit similar down there. It was. Yeah, actually, you know what? There's a, there's a university in Vietnam. It's called Kenta University. And the University of Mississippi and LSU do, do uh, kind of some combined research out there because the Delta is very similar to uh, the type of environment we have in Louisiana. So j- before we jump into some of your experiences, the Diplomatic Security Service, how did the DSS guys fit in? You mean how we fit in at, at an embassy? Or, or in, in the just grand scheme of things, like who, who we who we are. Who's tougher? <laughs> oh gosh, not us. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, I know, what listen, do you know? What are you known for? I, mean, I imagine you know the Navy SEALs. They're they're kind of headstrong and they have they have skills, you know. And then there's you know yeah. Delta guys. They do this, and then there's you know yeah, CIA the POX, which are kind of yeah, here I, and there. I, I think it's a it's 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 cool and uh, and an honor to be uh, in that category, but where you shouldn't be. Uh, well, I love the DS, uh, and and uh, and I love the guys. Those those guys are just elite operators, you know, SEALs, Delta, uh, all those guys. We we're closer, probably to more CIA, not not their paramilitary group, not their paramilitary group, but like operations officers. It's kind of like a community in itself. Whether you're with CIA or FBI or or uh, you know DS or State Department, you know, you have a uh, it's just a common experience living at an embassy that you get nowhere else because you, I mean, you all have all you have is each other, right? Yeah. So it's pretty cool, but we don't fit into those categories with those guys. We're not, uh, you know, we're a federal law enforcement agency. And so we fit more with the secret service, you know, those types of guys, except that we have a, a, a for, you know, a, an overseas element working at some of these embassies. And, and you could articulate based par- the, a paramilitary definition, you know, that we do militaristic style stuff with the high threat protection and, you know, at one time working with the military, when I was in Baghdad, my first and the beginning of my TDY, my first tour, we had, you know, motorcades running down. We had helicopters doing recons for us. And so in that element, it is paramilitary like, but nothing compared to like what the CIA paramilitary guys do. So we're, we're a federal law enforcement agency is what it is. Now we're overseas. We all work together, depending on where you were. When I was in northern Iraq, there were Navy SEALs there. There were Delta guys there. There were NSA. There were CIA. There was everyone. And then we're on a task force and I was the liaison to that task force. And so those guys were doing some cool stuff, uh, but I wasn't kicking indoors with them. I was just providing as much information as I could. If you read the the book, the Kayla Mueller story, uh, that's kind of how uh, a story is called uh, Because of Delisle. And it's about Kayla Mueller. Uh, she's the first female ISIS American, the first female American hostage held by ISIS. And, uh, you know, I worked with those guys to provide information and they went and do what they do. But uh, now that said, not all DS agents, I mean, some guys are tough. There's several Marines, a lot of Marines in DS. There's uh, some Navy SEALs in DS. There's a ton of SF guys, Special Forces guys. And, and so it's like a career after that stuff is what I could say. Right. After you're a SEAL. Right. After you're an SF, after you're a Marine, people generally go into this. Well, you can you can go into this career. The lead law enforcement agent in any embassy is a DS agent. It's not FBI. People think FBI is the top guy. Right. It's a DS agent. And uh we have all the law enforcement contact. They have some as well, uh, but we have a ton of law enforcement contacts, particularly on the security side. So, so I, I, you brought up the Kayla Miller story, and you put that in your preface of your book as well. I was just wondering, maybe you could tell me a little bit about about that case. 
I, you don't have to go through the detail that you did in the chapters, but, um, you know, maybe tell me a little bit about this and why it was, why it was kind of important to you. I was running a program or I was responsible for a program called personnel recovery. And so any RSO, any DS special agent, when you're overseas, you have a particular portfolio. And if you're in a high, high threat location with a, at a big embassy, like I was in Baghdad, it's just protection, right? Mm-hmm. You go to a smaller embassy, you have multiple portfolios. In Erbil, one of mine in, in Northern Iraq, one of mine was personnel recovery. And with that, the liaison to the uh, task force that I spoke about earlier. And so the United Nations camp on the Syrian border received a call. Uh, we, we received a call from the United Nations camp on the Syrian border saying that they had two uh, female former ISIS hostages. They escaped ISIS. And they said they were held with two Americans. And so it's obviously something that we wanted to hear about, that the Americans wanted to hear about. So uh, United Nations, as I said, called the consulate. The consulate called the regional security office, uh, regional security officer, my boss, tasked it to me. And I was to find out all I could about it. So I checked at my FBI guy, our, our, our legal attache there. He said, yep, we're looking for a girl that fits the description that they gave us. And I said, Roger that. We need to talk to him. And they were all the way on the Syrian border. We were in Erbil. So we planned to go out there. With that came a report. That report gets sent out to a lot of people, the task force, DOD being some of those people. And they called me up and said, Cody, would you mind if we get in on this and we'll give you a lift? I said, sure, because it's a 16-hour drive in Suburbans. It's about an hour and a half flight, if I remember correctly, and a helo. So I took the ride and uh, you know, left from their base. Uh, they dropped me off in this parking lot. I had an analyst. I had, my, had a, a DOD intel analyst with me, an Army intel analyst. And my uh, cultural advisor, also my interpreter, and we got in a taxi in uh, Hook, Iraq, drove over to uh, this location where uh, the United Nations had a, a subset of offices and interviewed these two girls that we determined uh, were held with Kayla Mueller. Kayla was uh, American from Prescott, Arizona. She was um, uh, doing some work, cross-border work in Turkey and over in Syria. She was dating a guy with doctors without well, it worked for Doctors Without Borders. He was actually an IT guy with them. And he went over the border to do some work on IT system at a hospital. And that's where she got captured. And at that time, no one had heard from her in, uh, I think it's about nine or 10 months. She just disappeared off the map, right? Wait, her boyfriend was an IT guy? Oh, he sounds like such a spy. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, IT guy. And I think he was he was either Turkish or Syrian. He wasn't American. So, and who knows, right? She, he could have easily turned her over for money. I, I mean, that's what happens in this part of the world. Right. So, so, uh, you know, I interviewed those two girls, hardest interviews of my life. Why? Well, well, I, I mentioned in the book, I, I, I'm an investigator, right? We do investigative interviews, usually uh, interviews that are confrontational. Well, both because you interview witnesses and, and uh, suspects. But this was uh, an interview where these girls told me about very personal details about them being abused multiple times and sitting there going through these interviews and trying to be respectful and, you know, trying to find that balance between getting, wanting to get information and being, you know, sensitive to the situation and sympathetic or sympathetic to the situation was not something I was used to, you know? So, uh, it was tough hearing all this. Um, and, but, but our objective, while I cared what she went through, our objective was ultimately to get to Kayla, right? So it's not dismissing what she had, but almost in a way it felt like when you're interviewing that it was, right? So tell me the next thing. What was, you know, what was Kayla wearing? What did the doors look like? What what kind of, which way did the doors open? What were the locks? Tell me about the locks on the doors. How many guards were outside? You know, what were the windows like? What covered the windows? Which ways did the windows open? All this time, every piece of, piece of detail you could give, I was getting. And all of that 
knowing what she just went through was probably, but to her seemed irrelevant to me was very important, mm-hmm. you know? So anyway, that's why it yeah. was a little tougher than usual. Yeah. But it kind of brings up that when a person's being interviewed, what what they think is the, is, you know, the, the most devastating information might not necessarily be what, what you were looking for. So you seem to have like a kind of natural investigative ability when you're with your first case with, um, Demetrius when you were in Houston and with Tyra and Danae. And, um, but anyway, I was just wondering how your skills as an investigator uh, developed over your time with, with DSS and how it changed and what you might have learned. Yeah. So they, they I mean, the, the purpose, and this is good on DS for, for uh, uh, the, the way they, they kind of do this, is they send us to these field offices to get this investigative experience because they know that we could potentially be overseas and on our own. Right. And doing these investigations, not necessarily one as intense as the one I did. I mean, if you read the book about the the guy that uh, Mr. Han, that his head was taken off, that was a uh, it was a, a workplace accident and he was killed. And so I had to investigate that. So but my yeah, my skill set and in investigations evolved from the basic training at Fletzy to Houston. And, you know, I think I was very fortunate because DS doesn't have the most robust investigative, I guess, say capabilities. I mean, we do passport visa fraud. You know, there's a lot of cases are open and closed. The U.S. Attorney's Office won't prosecute them just because they don't meet a threshold. You know, the U.S. Attorney's Office, just like a district attorney, gets so many cases, you know, they have to prioritize which ones are most important. And so, you know, you go through a lot of cases in Houston where you do a full investigation, they don't get prosecuted. But what that does for me is refines my skill set, right? So I can, I'm doing a ton of them. Whereas if you're in the Washington field office as a DS agent, you're doing a ton of protection. You're not doing many investigations. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate to be in Houston to have those cases that you read about, you know, it certainly evolved over time. I, I spent, it was a little, it was two years in Houston. And uh, I think I, towards the end, and you become very, you become senior in DS pretty quick because they're rotating so fast. You rotate people every two years, you know? So by the time I was six months in, that's when the Tyra and Danae, that case came through. And I was a kind of considered a senior agent at that time. I had people that were junior to me and we worked the cases and kind of did our thing. I just I had a personal question about passport. Do people really can people really forge passports anymore these days, or are they like you know a hundred dollar bill with all these like hidden little nooks and crannies that it's impossible? Yeah, that's no, pretty really hard to to forge a passport. At the beginning, uh, I think when I started with DS, they were still you know passports. Generally, your passports are ten years uh, of, vali- of validity, and so they were grandfathered in. So these older passports, were, which were easier to manipulate, were being grandfathered in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 then as you each year that those expire, you know now it's really hard to manipulate a passport. But passport fraud comes in many shapes, right? So if you lie on a passport application, you you know, if you ever filled out a passport application, you sign at the bottom and it says under penalty of perjury, I declare all this truth. And there's a lot of people that will apply with someone's information. So if your information gets stolen online, you got a name, you got a social security number, you know, you find a picture they look similar to someone mm-hmm. from a Texas ID or you name it, then you can apply for that passport and you apply in the name of someone else. When really you're a you know Nigerian uh, applying as an American, and that's generally the types of cases we get. That's not the the you know forging of uh, not forging, but a uh, you know counterfeit passports. It's more of uh, the in the application process that they lie, and it can be anything, Mark from. Just someone stealing a social security number and everything else is accurate, right? Now, if you mess up and put the wrong address or something, that's not a big deal, but it's got to be deliberate. And so we look for those things. And there's also these indicators on these passport applications that we're trained to to note. 
and go and investigate. Um, that's the type of passport fraud we're, we're doing. So I imagine you work with customs, with the border and customs as well. You know, whenever I travel now, there's these, you don't really have to fill out this customs form anymore because you entered it on the computer and then they take your picture. And I'm just wondering, this must be a huge amount of, of, of data and information for anyone who who travels is that all stored somewhere and is it accessible for investigators yeah yeah it's stored somewhere it's 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 not as easy you know we still don't communicate as well as we would like you know since 9-11 and that was then back then it was fbi cia but even now it's hard for me to get cbp info a lot of it is is uh you have to just go through their each internal process for each organization so to get some information from cbp at least when i was doing it back in 2008 2009 you know you have to submit something with a supervisor's signature and it goes has to go through their processes and then comes back. Now there are things that are interconnected. We had a little bit, you know, we had limited availability on an ICE or HSI database, but that CBP stuff like flight records or entry, uh, entry and exit information, right. You know, we could get on, on certain systems, but if we wanted details, you know, so we could pull up, all right, this person crossed this many times on this date, but if we wanted details, if they're pulled into secondary, right? What they were questioned about, what they had on their body, you know, the information that we really need for an investigation. Then, in that case, we have to go through additional steps to get that information. Wow, I didn't know they were so. I didn't know they were so proprietary. So you worked with a lot of people, or at least you know, from from various distances. There was, I mean, Joe Biden, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, some people, you know, pretty high up politicians and diplomats. Is there anything that they all have? In common? I mean, their politics are all pretty common, I guess, but I try to stay out of that. Oh, you do? Is it because of what you do now? Are you, well, you work private now, right? I work private now. Yeah. But I mean, back then, I mean, you know, as DS agents, DS agents are, tend to be more conservative. We're mostly former military cops. And so we, right. you know, we serve, I signed up whenever I got in when Bush was in power, uh, you know, Obama took power. And to us, it was nothing. Like we, we just do the job. We love the job. And, we just kind of did what we did. Of course, we have our personal feelings on politics, but we just did what we had to do. So Kerry was all right. I was his driver a couple times. I was his advance agent in Vietnam. If you read that, oh, I didn't put that chapter in there, but uh, I did talk about it a little bit, but I was his advance agent. And that just means I was the guy that set everything up before he came. And then in Vietnam, I took him like a, I'd have a, I was on a, a quote unquote fast boat and would go to each little island he visited and would call him in on the radio and make sure everything was secure. So uh, he was good. He just, he, he carried just seemed a little distant. You know, he wouldn't really talk to us and not as uh, personable as he probably could have been the big issue, but he, but he was fine overall. Clinton was, was, uh, and this is personal experience was, was not well liked by the agents. Um, she didn't like having us there. We had to be there. She, and if you ask secret service agents, they'd probably tell you the same thing just because she was, you know, with, with her husband, she fell under their protection for many years uh, during and after his presidency. But my problem with her that the most was that she was always late, really late. <laughs> and it impacted. You wouldn't think it would impact like a Joe, a regular dude like myself, but it did. Cause I, you know, so I was in, in San Pedro, San Pedro Sula, Honduras during the organization of American States, which is like the equivalent to a, you know, a, a, an OPEC or a, a, a APAC or, you know, just different countries that combine together to promote economic. So anyway, but I was her, I was uh, one of the advanced agents. I was actually called a pre-poster. So I was brand new. I'd been an, I'd been a DS agent for maybe by less than six months, three months. And so a pre-poster is, is with this, the advance agent who's a little more senior and they'll basically you, when you're secured area, so you'll take a bomb with a sniffing dog, you'll secure an area, the dog will sniff it, make sure everything's good. Everything's clear. And boom, you post an agent right there. No one else gets in or out. 
that's the way it is. If they do get in or out, they got to have a pass. You look them up and down, this type. This, there's different elements depending on where you're at, what you're doing. And so I was a pre-poster, and I was pre-posted in the area where the meeting would be. And the meeting was with all these presidents from all these smaller, but presidents of foreign countries in Latin America. Right. And she was late. And she was like an hour late. And granted, you know, it's America, great, but she's she she doesn't outrank them. They're presidents of these countries. So I'm standing around and these presidents and their aides are asking me, Hey, where is she? What's going on? Like this is basically saying this is this is messed up. This is disrespectful. So I'm there with her line agent. So the way it works is there's a security agent and there's a line agent. I mean not a line agent, a line officer. And it's just a regular foreign service officer that works with the secretary's detail. And they deal with like scheduling and protocol. They're not security people. But we kind of marry up at sites, right? And so I'm there filling these questions because that line officer just disappeared for whatever reason. And I'm filling these questions from from either these these presidents' aides or these actual presidents because they were getting up like to get water and they were just getting pissed off and asking where she is. And she's like an hour freaking late, you know, and that's and I was obviously frustrated and ticked off. But then that's not my first experience with her. Same thing in South Africa, same thing in Nigeria. And so I said, this is just. But aren't you guys responsible for her movement as well? I mean, you put her in the car and not physically, but, you know, you put her in the car and then things start to happen. Why, why weren't you in control of that? Yeah, we don't control that. We, we, could, we, we control her movements around her timeline and they'll give a timeline, but it's up to her. She's the boss. So if she wants to move an hour late, she moves an hour late. And she used to stay in her room getting her hair done. I don't know if she wakes up late or whatever, but that was usually the thing. Like she's still getting her hair done. She travels with like a person that does her hair. Yeah, we don't we don't control the timeline. We we always get like a skeleton timeline. Usually it's a by the end, by the time you get there, it's a real schedule, but she she doesn't always stick to it. I mean, she rarely sticks to it. Now, if there was a threat, the, the times that we could come and play is like if there's a threat or something's about to pop off, then uh we would step up and say we got to go or something like that, but you know, those are those are pretty rare. There were subtle ways where you could let your politics be known. Yeah. Did you find it was a challenge hiding it or did you make an attempt to hide it or it, it i'm just wondering what's it what's it like i mean that was you got out in what 2012 or something or uh 2017 i got out yeah or 2017 so that's that's recent yeah. i mean what what was it like what was it like being being in there with with in such a politically divisive country well you know the elections started what 2016 with the Trump Hillary elections, and and I was I mean I was I'm a conservative uh, I wasn't a Trump fan, uh, and so for me but then he, he when he got into power I left right around that time it wasn't because of him at all I would have stayed on it's because of personal reasons I had family but I guess more so was under the Obama administration because I spent most of my time then most of most diplomats are, are liberal they're they're whether Democrats or independents I don't know but they're they're liberal. And they just have a particular mindset. Now, I'll tell you, leaving politics aside, I have some really great friends that are liberals that are just great people, and they're sensible and common sense people. But then there are some that I just, coming from the military and being a conservative, I just butted heads with. I didn't. We didn't talk about politics left after the Mitt Romney loss. In in uh, I was in Vietnam. We watched it. I wasn't crazy about Mitt Romney, but I didn't want a, a second Obama tour. You know, people knew how it felt. It's almost to the point where it's a where it's a it's kind of a joke. Like they'll tease you for being the conservative, and you'll tease them for being a lib, and and you know, and, and I, I kind of I miss those days because I feel like you can't do that anymore. Oh, I know. Now it's knives knives drawn. Yeah, no. And back then it was you know I I, I knew where they stood and I knew where I could push their buttons and they could push my buttons, but it was all fun and games, and they were just good people, you know. And and not that 
people these days aren't, but it's like, it's anger. It's a lot of, there's a lot of anger out there. So, yeah. but I didn't have a problem with it really. Uh, all, you know, from a, a kind of a 30,000 foot view was, it was, it was fine. Did you find that there were divisive or maybe just incongruent political differences in the job, in what you were doing? Or was it just mostly side conversation? There might've been at higher levels. Uh, it, it wasn't at my level. I didn't, I didn't notice really anything like that. I mean, you could talk about internal politics of a, of a embassy, you know, and not the, the kind of overall Democrat Republican elected official politics is that, but no, I didn't really impact the job at all. What, what is it like working in an, in an embassy? It's great. <laughs> I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Um, everyone's different. Every place is different. Obviously there are some embassies like Moscow where a significant amount of staff and the Marines lived on compound. And uh, that's mm-hmm. what, not ideal. There are places like Vietnam where I lived uh, in a high rise in the middle of Ho Chi Minh City, which is a beautiful up and coming city. And I walked to work every day. And then, you know, working inside the embassy, I mean, <clears throat> there's so many rules and regulations of how embassies are set up these days. And they don't all meet the criteria yet. I imagine at some point that's the plan. But they're really, uh, they're just kind of cold, I guess. They're just these brick buildings with squared offices and cubicles and you have a certain amount of offices on one floor and a certain amount of offices on another floor. And there's in a lot of these, in a lot of the new newer ones, you really don't see people as often as you would in a, in a regular office space, I would say, just because you're kind of secluded in your own area. And a lot of that is for security purposes, you know, for whether it's if intelligence you know, or mitigation, counterintelligence purposes, there's a number of factors there. So that you, you'd have to meet people at, at after hours events or then if there's a cafeteria or something like that, that's kind of where you get to socialize. You know, I'm an extrovert. I, I, I get energy from meeting people and talking to people. Sometimes that's, that's not the case. You do build a community overall because they do have events they have events that you want to go to because sometimes you don't speak the language and you're not going out in town that much and you want to build a community with people that you that you work with and live with that have common values and culture and language and so you tend to build these friendships out there that it could be a tight-knit group you know if you're in a place like Baghdad, iraq yeah it's a it's a pretty tight-knit group but it's so big that you have your cliques but uh if you're in a place like the bahamas it's not tight-knit at all because it's the Bahamas. You can go out and speak English and go to the beach and do your own thing with your own family and not really have to worry about, you know, make your own friends. I think I was reading the Richard Grinnell, ambassador to Germany. Well, he's the new DNI, but he was saying that there's a lot of um, overkill at embassies. A lot of the, he said a lot of that information we can get online <laughs> and that we don't need to have as many uh, diplomats roaming around over there. What, what, I mean, I know you had a different point of view from their workings in the embassy, but what, what is your take on that? You know, I think for DS per, for DS specifically, uh, I think we're at least the places I serve is pretty adequate. I, I was busy in Vietnam. I could have used a little help actually. I recall seeing people in offices, you know, because it's a number of different offices. You could be a, a general services office, like or, or facilities, or you could be in something in you know, policy, political or economic. And I, I feel like I saw there were times where there, there were people that probably one person could do multiple jobs. Um, but for my take. I felt like DS staffed it up pretty well, or at least didn't overstaff. One last question, I guess, is uh, what'd you learn doing that? I mean, there were languages, there were, you know, you're challenged as a leader in some really stressful situations. But I guess when you kind of look back at that, what, what was the one thing that you really took away? Like, oh, oh wow, I, I can do this now that you didn't know you could do. It's a good question. You know, I think, uh, let me step back. I joined the Marine Corps and it changed me a lot, taught me a lot, discipline time management, some of the basic skills that as a kid, when I joined at 18, I really didn't have. When I became a DS agent and then I went overseas, 
and I learned how other people live and I learned some of the, uh, you know, I learned different cultures and languages and cuisines like I talked about earlier, but seeing what people go through in some of these countries and how they live oftentimes in poverty or in, in dire situations, dire circumstances, right? Refugee camps on Syrian borders. You really learn that you have it pretty good in the U S that all the problems that we have, and you'll see these kids in these camps, you know, impoverished areas of Vietnam that are just living it up, laughing, joking. I have pictures all over my Facebook of it work at orphanages there. and They're just loving life. And so are the families, the parents are drinking beer and having a good time. And you think that like, you know, we have people in America that are, have everything and iPhones and iPads and access to just about everything. And, you know, they're not as happy as some of these people living in some of these really awful circumstances. And so I think what I learned is perspective. Everything is uh, is put into perspective. It's not that bad. We don't have it so bad here. No matter what your politics are, no matter where you are in life, it could always be worse. And I've seen worse on many different levels. And so uh, I think I took that back with me. I know I took that back with me. And I try to to put that in perspective. And I, I talk about it probably too much to my family about you know how we should be grateful for what we have. We have a refrigerator and windows that cover up the holes in the walls. <laughs> That's more than like three yeah. quarters of, of the population, you know? Yeah, like bugs absolutely. can't fly into this house and we, can, <laughs> right. and we can store food. We are so far ahead of so many people, you know? Yeah, but, absolutely. Cody, before I let you go, um, you were also a Marine Guard uh, stationed at the embassy in Moscow. You know, I've got some questions about that, but maybe you can just let me know when you did that and what those responsibilities included. Yeah, sure. Uh, I arrived in October 2000 and I stayed there until June 2002. I was supposed to go for a one-year assignment because of the significance of the the intelligence threat there. Usually those countries, uh, they only allow you to go for a year. I stayed longer and I'll get to, to why. Yeah, I arrived there October 2000. And this was only my third country traveling at the time as a Marine. And I remember arriving in the snow and there were these green trucks and vehicles with the hammer and sickle still on them from old Soviet times. And it felt like right. I was in that uh, James Bond video game <laughs> that I played as a kid, you know, so it's really interesting start, you know, snowing. And, uh, and so I spent a year and a half there as a Marine embassy guard. We're responsible for the uh, protection of personnel, uh, classified sensitive information and, and property. And so we stand on a post, we have rovers, we do patrols within the compound. We respond to all emergencies, kind of like the police force of the compound. When we don't arrest people, we just look after people. And we were managed by diplomatic security special agents uh, under their purview. You know, that's, that's what we did. And we trained a lot and got to go out on the town and, and do things. But it, was, uh, it wasn't as expensive then to live there as it is now, from my understanding. You know, things have changed. I guess we'll get to this, but they were very aggressive in watching us everywhere we went, everything we did. And I say they as in the, uh, the intelligence unit. FSB. The FSB, yeah. So where did you live? Where were the barracks? So we lived on compound. Um, the Moscow embassy has uh, – it's the, the new embassy compound was, was huge. Uh, and it had like apartment complexes that go up and down. But we lived on the compound. Uh, there were diplomats that lived out in the city. You know, as the security for the for the grounds, we 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 lived where we could respond effectively. I didn't know you guys were responsible for all the security of the entire compound. I mean, I thought it was largely ceremonial. You know, I mean, there's the, there's the Marine guards at the at the gate, but they didn't contract out 
building security or anything like that to any other companies? The Marines are responsible for all that? Yeah. So there's elements of how it works in, in the security world. We call it concentric rings of security or layers of security. So the host government is responsible for providing that first level of security. So they'll have like police or two or three or more standing on the outside of the compound. To get onto the compound, it is a guard force, a contracted guard force that you know checks your bags, makes you walk through a metal detec- detector. But then you once you get Inside the compound, the Chancery, that's where we are. And Moscow had two embassies at the time. The old one, you probably heard a bunch of stories about, and the new one. And we were responsible for security inside both of those. But should there be an attack or some type of intruder, and there was uh, an intruder, and there were different things that happened. The Marines would secure the compound. We are Marine guards, but highly trained to be security guards with different weapon systems and police, law enforcement tactics, those types of things. So, and, and back then, it's changed a little. Back then, most of Marine security guards were combat arms guys. So uh, by combat arms, I mean like your infantry guys, your combat engineers, your your tanks, people that trained in the Marine Corps for some type of combat role. At that time, none of us had combat experience because we weren't at war. They did that because you're kind of on an island, right? You're in the middle of Russia by yourself. There's 30 of you, you know, and, and so they took guys like that, guys and girls, you know, with that background within the Marine Corps. Um, but no, not ceremonial, not just ceremonial. We we actually have an arsenal <laughs> to take care of business <laughs> if we need to. Yeah, I just imagine the arsenal that you have at the embassy. Like what could possibly get – I mean, I guess if, you know, if there were riots or somebody raided the embassy, you guys had you guys had a plan for that. You're all you got. You're by yourself, right? You have a Marine fast team, you know, somewhere in the ocean out there that can get to you in 24 hours and, and that's it. Wow. So you probably had a safe room, I'm guessing. Anyway, you probably can't tell me about it. So what was it like? When could you leave? Like on weekends or every night? Was it easy to get out into the city? It was pretty easy at the time to get out. We, we had a no frat policy. If you do uh, fraternize with the locals to a particular level, then you have to report that. But we'd get out when we're off, you know, so we had shift work, a number of Marines there. Yeah, maybe you could tell me why you had, there was a certain cautionary tale you guys were probably warned about <laughs> yeah. when you got there. Maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah, I imagine you're talking about Clayton Longtree. And yes. uh, his story, 80s, right, where he was kind of a loner and a target for Russian intelligence services. And he was penetrated by females, which the Russians, the Russian intelligence services, for your listeners, are, are very aggressive. One of the aggressive, most aggressive in the world, not only for human intelligence, but technical intelligence. He was taken advantage of. They identified him from afar. You know, there's certain characteristics of individuals that they look at. And basically, uh, you know, he became close with the young lady there and then was given up information. And then when he went on to his second assignment, I forget exactly where that was, he continued to give information and gave the, the Marine Corps a black eye. It was not good for our history. Well, a name like Lone Tree, right? Yeah, you know, he probably had it coming. I guess her name was Violetta Siena, and she was well. That was the name that she gave him. But she was a translator at the embassy, so she was like a local national, ostensibly working on the compound. Did you have? Could you fraternize or even be friends with people that were other Russians that were working during my time there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we could. I mean, we could have friends. You could date. You could hang out with them. You just had to report everything. So what was that like? No, it's actually as a formal process in which you submit information. I think it's still pretty sensitive. I won't get exactly into it, but it, but yeah, you get, sure. you have to report, you know, what, yeah. what your, what your ongoings are. And it could be, if you went to a soccer match and played soccer with someone or just had a beer and someone approached you, you always report anomalies. And again, they're very aggressive. So there were anomalies. Oh, can you describe any that you had? Yeah. Well, 
I'll tell you, we had a new guy that arrived from Mississippi. He's originally from Mississippi and he had, you know, and I can joke around with him because I'm from Louisiana and he had a really strong accent and uh, just kind of, I don't know if they saw him as a target. I mean, he was a big, decent looking guy, but maybe they just thought he was new. You know, I say he's from Mississippi because maybe his accent's what made him, made him a target. But we were sitting down at this place called, uh, we call it Chesterfields, but it was actually called Boarhouse, Doug and Marty's Boarhouse. And it was owned by Doug and Marty, who were respectively UK and Canadian citizens. And they loved the Marine, us, from the cons- from the embassy. And so we would go there, and there was a huge Eagle Globe and anchor on the wall right when you walked in. Massive. It took up the whole wall. And we would walk in, cocky as can be, and smack our hand on the Marine Eagle Globe and anchor. And then like, all the security and everyone else would just let us, you know, because these young American guys, you know, with short haircuts and slapping the Marine Corps emblem. And obviously we come from the embassy and so we're targets. And so this one guy sat down with us one time and uh, was asking questions and, you know, we were generally being friendly to them. And we asked, well, what do you do? And he told us, he said, well, I work for a Russian intelligence service. And that's one, that's one of several approaches that you can use, but one of them is the direct approach. Yeah. Just a cold pitch. Just a cold pitch. Yep. And so we all kind of looked at each other and like, you need to get out of here. He said, well, and he kind of just kept going and we all stood up and we were like, we were going to throw some hands, which we did often. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, and the guy got up and left. There have been other incidents with guys where they were approached by a young female and, you know, asked too many questions. I had a, a girl that just was asking too many questions and I reported it. You know, we were like walking down by the Arbot actually. I remember it vividly. And, and uh, she's like, what about that building? What goes on in there? And these types of things. And I said, ah, this, this just does not, this is too much. They approach you in a number of different ways, but that one there stood out. Any memorable events while, while you were there? You know, September 11th happened while, uh, while I was at the embassy. And so that was a significant event the day it happened and kind of the, what took place. And How did it affect things over there? How did, the, how did they... I was in Canada when it happened. I remember yeah. it struck me. I thought, well, I realized, well, I'm in a different country. People are reacting a little bit differently, but I'm just wondering how, how they reacted in, uh, in Moscow. Well, you know, there were, I guess there are two ways. The, the, the day of the attack, our American staff, embassy personnel were so gracious to the Marines. I guess they all knew that a bunch of us and a bunch of our colleagues were going to combat soon. And they came and they were like thanking us. And I'm standing here in a box. It's a security guard. You know, <laughs> he's thanking me, but that was very kind of them. The Russians were actually really great. Um, the Russian people, they were laying reefs and flowers and candles and signs at the base of the embassy that you saw, the old embassy. And uh, they were very kind to us. But that became a security problem, though, because if they're leaving, it's like, what are they leaving? You know, like, <laughs> what's in that box that you're leaving there, right? <laughs> but, but they were very kind to us. And even then, like when we went out to because we, you know, after a couple of days, we life began to get back to normal a little bit. And we'd go and have drinks. And just when they they knew we we're Americans and Russians in general, were just very kind. To yeah, that's wild. I mean, I didn't realize that they demonstrated that kind of solidarity at the time. Yeah, I had stories all day for uh, for Moscow. They, it's it was a it was a good time. Thank you very much, Cody, for being on the live drop. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. And that's my interview with Cody Perone. His book is called Agents Unknown. He also has an audio version available as well about his time in the diplomatic security service and the transmission.